morning. It's a snowy day in Liberty, and there's no power at the church this morning, so we're not gathering for worship. But I had a sermon written, so you'll get to hear it anyways. And this, uh, we're live right now. Um, you may hear a generator in the background. Um, that's uh, just part of the course today, I think. And uh, um, in any case, I'll, I'll, I'll share the sermon with you guys this morning. And this is live now, but it will be uh, recorded and, and posted as soon as the, the live video is finished. So um, that will be available here on Facebook um, for anyone who wants to watch it. And it will also be available um, on audio, uh, the way we usually post the sermons. So that will show up uh, hopefully at some point. Uh, if not this afternoon, then, then tomorrow. The reading for today, the second Sunday in Advent, is in Isaiah chapter 40. Phone's ringing. Pay no attention to that. Isaiah chapter 40. And uh, we're going to be in verses 1 through 11. You may remember we were in the second half of Isaiah 40 a couple of weeks ago. We're going to look at the first 11 verses this morning. Isaiah 40, starting in verse 1. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries, In the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord, Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, Cry! And I said, What shall I cry? All flesh is grass. And all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Get you up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not, say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might, and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom, and gently lead those that are with young. This is God's word. I think Isaiah's words of hope and of comfort for God's people uh, in this passage seem just perfectly relevant for our church in the season that we're in. Um, looking back over 2020, we seems like we experienced loss after loss and difficulty after difficulty. In many ways, it, it we have kinship with the people of Judah after they'd seen Jerusalem destroyed and that they were carried off into a foreign land. In dark days, just like Judah, we need a word of hope, a lamp to light up the darkness. And that's just the kind of word that Isaiah spoke to his people in Isaiah chapter 40. Verse 1 says, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Isaiah 40 Verses 1 through 11 is a word of comfort to weary people. And we're going to work through this passage verse by verse to try and squeeze out as much, as much uh, solid, spine-strengthening, tender comfort as we can. And the big idea is this. Even while waiting in exile, God 
as a word of comfort for his people. It's true in Babylon, and it's true today. Judah was waiting for deliverance and for the coming of Messiah. We're waiting for something different, for a final deliverance from the sin and brokenness of our bodies and of this world at the second coming of our Messiah, Jesus. And what was true of the people of Judah in their time is, is true for us now. Even while waiting in exile, waiting for the deliverance of God, God has a word of comfort for his people. My hope is that God's word of comfort to Judah would be a comfort to us this morning. So let's pray as we go to God's word. Father, we ask your blessing on this time together as we go to your word. The weariness and the waiting of this season in the life of our church, we ask that you would speak to us this morning a word of comfort. Give me accuracy as I seek to speak your truth in a feeling sense of the words that I speak. Tenderly minister to our hearts by your Spirit and remind us afresh of the great hope that we have in Christ. We pray all this in Jesus' name. passage opens up with the bold line, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Something to look out for when we're reading the Old Testament prophets is to understand the voice that's being used. Who's speaking, basically? Some of the book of Isaiah is, is a historical narrative, written with a narrative voice. Uh, some of the book of Isaiah is prayer, written as a response of Isaiah, or people, back to God. And still other sections of Isaiah are God's very words to his people or to his messenger, Isaiah. And that's what we find here. God's very words. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. And this is a command. An imperative. Comfort my people. And the command is from God, as we said. Comfort my people, says your God. Who's supposed to do the comforting isn't clear, but the command is unquestionable. Comfort, comfort, my people. Notice that repetition there. Comfort, comfort, twice for emphasis. We get the point. This is about comfort. But how is, how is Judah supposed to be comforted? What do you say to a people in the darkness of exile? What do you say? Well, God gives four words. Four words, four cries, four messages of comfort to proclaim to his people. We'll, we'll break up the passage into those four sections. The first one starts in verse 2, where God commands, Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her. That's the first cry. The second cry starts in verse 3. A voice cries. The third cry starts in verse 6. A voice says, Cry. And I said, what shall I cry? The fourth cry, it doesn't have the word cry in it, but it's the fourth section, starts in verse 9. Go up, on to, go up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news, lift up your voice with strength. There's four commands to speak, four words of comfort, cries of comfort. By cry, Isaiah doesn't mean the, the weeping of an infant, right? but the bold cry of a herald, a proclaimer of news. To cry is to proclaim loudly. We're going to look at those four cries this morning. Four cries. A tender cry, a glorious cry, a confident cry, and an encouraging cry. First, a tender cry of forgiveness. Take a look at verse 2 of Isaiah chapter 40. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. Cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. The first word of comfort which God wants proclaimed to his weary people is a tender cry of forgiveness. After suffering through the pain of God's judgment on their sin, after having their homes and their promised land wrenched away from them, comes this tender word of forgiveness. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. 
this phrase that's translated speak tenderly is used elsewhere in the Old Testament to refer to the softly spoken words of romance. God's tone to his people is no longer the hard words of rebuke and judgment. God is speaking now to his people with a tender tone of love. Notice here that God tenderly addresses Jerusalem. He speaks to Jerusalem. And Jerusalem was the, the center and the heart of the southern kingdom of Judah and really of all Israel. We don't really have a center like that in the U.S. We've got kind of fragmented right? Our governments in D.C. We've got an entertainment center in L.A. We've got kind of a financial center in New York. But in Israel, Jerusalem was the center of every part of the life of the nation of Israel. And of course, it was especially important because the temple was there. Jerusalem was the spiritual home of God's people, Israel, even if they lived elsewhere in an outlying town or city. For the faithful people of Israel, their, the rhythm of their year was defined by their annual pilgrimages to Jerusalem for the, the high festivals of the year. So in a very real sense, when God says, speak tenderly to Jerusalem, he's saying, speak tenderly to all of Israel. When God says, speak tenderly to Jerusalem, he's using it, Jerusalem as almost a, a personification of all of Israel. He's speaking to all of God's people whose hearts belong to that great city. Verse 2 again, speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned. There's two ideas here. Jerusalem's warfare is ended and her iniquity is pardoned. The NIV translates warfare here as hard service. We don't have an exact equivalent of the Hebrew word, but, but the idea here is of a fixed term of service. In other words, Jerusalem's tour of duty was up. The time appointed for her warfare, for her hardship, was over. Soon she'd be coming home. And the reason her warfare was ended is connected to the next word here. Her warfare is ended because her iniquity is pardoned. Iniquity means sin. Jerusalem's exile in Babylon, where they'd been sent, was God's judgment on Israel's sin. They hardened themselves against him, against the God who, who formed them, and so he removed his protective hands from them and sent them into exile. The nation crumbled. The sin of God's people was the very reason for their exile. So, what a comfort for them to hear. Jerusalem, your iniquity is no more would God hold her sins against her. God sent his people into exile under judgment for a time, but that time was over and forgiveness had come. As Isaiah goes on in the chapters following Isaiah 40, God begins to explain through Isaiah's words how it is that he was going to forgive his people. Here in Isaiah 40, all we're told is the fact of God's forgiveness. He was choosing to forgive his people. But as Isaiah goes on, beginning in uh, chapter 42 and building up into a climax in chapter 53, a figure emerges called the suffering servant, who, enshrouded in mysterious prophecies, begins to explain how it is that God can forgive sin. This suffering servant was going to come to Israel as a servant of God, and he would come to save his people. Um, this servant was going to raise up the tribes of Jacob again and be a light to the nations. That's Isaiah 49. The servant was going to be a, a savior who was led and taught by the Lord. That's Isaiah 50. And then most importantly, this servant would actually take upon himself the sins of God's he was going to be God's instrument to forgive his people. Isaiah 53, I'm sure you're familiar with this chapter, starting in verse 4. This suffering servant 
Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The suffering servant is the answer to the question, how is it that God can forgive sin? How could God forgive his people and just forget their rebellion? Is God an unjust judge? Does he just go easy and, and let them slip by? No, God's perfectly just. He must punish sin. And yet even years and years before his arrival, God was making plans for the forgiveness of his people in the suffering of his servant, Jesus Christ. How is it that God can end his warfare with sinful people and pardon their iniquity? By laying on Christ, the iniquity of us all. In Christ, on the cross, in his suffering and death, God executed his perfect righteousness on his son instead of his people. Verse 5. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. The suffering servant to come would soon be born in a manger in Bethlehem. Born that he might die for the sins of his people and for all who would come to believe in him. The message of peace and forgiveness in Isaiah 40 was aimed at God's people in a particular time. And yet we too, in our day, need a message forgiveness. We too, all of us, have gone astray. We've all sinned against God. And the comforting message of Isaiah is that God is willing to make peace with sinful people through his suffering servant, his son, Jesus Christ. And when he came into the world, he brought even greater tidings that this comforting message of forgiveness was actually good news for all people. Not just for Israel that all who come to Christ in faith can be forgiven their sins and reconciled to God, their Maker. We spoke a lot about this last week, so I don't want to belabor the point, but it really is good news that God is willing to forgive sin. Imagine reading this prophecy as one of the exiles in Babylon, feeling the weight of God's judgment. We've sinned. God sent us away. Is there any hope of salvation? Is there any hope that he can forgive us? The answer, the comforting word, is yes. Even before he had sent them into exile, he'd given Isaiah these words of hope. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned. And even though they would live for many years in Babylon, God's people could take heart that their God no longer against them. But their God had plans for them to restore them and to bring them back into the promised land. And we can have that kind of same kind of hope. All of us who have believed in Christ, we've, we've had our sins forgiven. Our God is no longer against us in our rebellion. He is for us in Christ. He loves us. We have astonishing promises from him in Scripture about his eternal plans for us in Jesus. And though we may be waiting now, like Judah in exile, we wait in hope. We, we have heard the comforting words of Christ. A quote from John 14 here. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house there are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again 
will take you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. We wait for his return. We groan in the brokenness of this world. For whatever, they, whatever may come, there is no darkness so deep, no enemy so cunning, no trial so hard, no sickness so crippling, that it can shake from us the rock-solid hope which Jesus has given us. We await his return, sometimes groaning, sometimes limping along, seemingly on our last ounce of strength, but all the while our hearts have hope and peace because our sovereign creator, our maker and king, is not against us. He's for us, and he's coming back for us. Those of us who are in Christ are his sons and daughters, for whom his very son bled and died and was raised again from the dead. And whatever may come between now and when he returns, whatever trial our good God may allow us to face, we have confidence and great comfort that we have peace with God. End of verse 2. She has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. In other words, enough. Exile was enough. God had meted out his judgment on his people, and she had received double, he says. In other words, more than enough. Isn't it good to know that in Christ, God's judgment on our sin is more than satisfied? He is no longer interested in judgment on those who have come to faith in Christ. He is not seeking for new ways to punish us. Comfort, comfort, my people, says your God. In Christ, your iniquity can be pardoned. Be comforted. Be comforted by the forgiveness of God in Christ. I said there are four cries of comfort in this passage. We've looked at the first. The other three will be a bit shorter. First, a tender cry of forgiveness. Next, a glorious cry. A glorious cry of the Lord's coming. Take a look with me at verse 3. Voice cries. Second cry here. In the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. And all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. The first voice was tender. The second voice is glorious. Make way. Make way. God is coming. Prepare the way. Clear the streets. Line the highways. God is coming near. Forgiveness was the first comfort. In exile, they could have peace with God. But there was more comfort than just that. Now they could lean on the promise that soon God would come near to deliver them. Verse 4, every valley shall be lifted up. Mountain, he'll be made low, the uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. When I lived in Old Town, I used to run on this former railway line that was converted into a, a walking path. It's a beautiful path to run because it's it's so flat. It's a former railway line. And anytime there's a, a hill or a valley, the railway line just cut right through. Right? They cut through the hills and fill in the valleys. So it's this perfectly straight path. You can see the same kind of thing along road highways. Um, uh, makes me think of the, uh, the road where Route 3 uh, hits, hits uh, 95 in Augusta. And that new, the bypass that heads out to um, uh, exit 113. And you've got, on, on both sides of the road there, these massive artificial cliffs. Where they, where they blasted through the mountain, right? For the road to go through. Flatten the hills, build the valleys. And that's how it will be, Isaiah says, when the Lord comes to save. He's not going to be stopped by any kind of rough geography. His way to save his people will be straight and smooth and even, and he will blast through any obstacle between him and saving his people. His coming will be 
unstoppable. Verse 5, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Not only will this coming be unstoppable, it will be universal. All flesh, all of humankind, will see it when he comes. Now from Isaiah's perspective, he was foretelling one future coming of God. One day, God would gloriously appear among his people, flatten every barrier, and all the world would see. One coming. But God moves in mysterious ways. Remember that the Advent season is about coming, like we've been saying the last couple weeks. To be precise, two comings of Christ. Two comings of God into the world. Christ came at Christmas, and Christ will one day come again. The Gospels tell us that it was actually John the Baptist who was the voice crying in the wilderness, preparing the way of the Lord in direct fulfillment of verse 3 of this passage. In the person of Jesus, God came near. In the person of Jesus, the glory of the Lord was revealed, and John was the voice pointing to him. Now, at his baptism, in John's presence, the glory of the Lord is revealed in Jesus. Now Christ's glory in his first coming was the humble glory of servanthood, the humble glory of God-made man, of the King come down to seek and to save the lost and the rebels. Christ came the first time as the glorious conquering King, come to win back his world and his people by his world-shaking humiliation on the cross, his death-defying resurrection on the third day. And exploding out from there, the whole world is coming to see the glory of God in the person of Christ. John shouted, make way, and Jesus came, the glory of God in human form. That was Christ's first glorious coming in fulfillment in verse 5. Christ has come, but Christ is coming again. Though he came in glory once, he did not come in such a way as to be visible to the whole world immediately. Nor did he come with the mountain-flattening power which Isaiah prophesied. And in Christ's second coming, he will. He will come with the glory of the conquering king. Listen to Jesus describe his second coming before he had left his disciples. I'm reading from Matthew 24 here, starting in verse 29. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. There is a day coming when Christ the Son of Man will return in great glory. All the people of the earth will witness the glory and power of God as revealed in His Son, Jesus Christ, the King of all things. So when we hear the words of Isaiah in verses 3 through 5, if you listen closely, you actually hear about both comings, both Christ's first coming and His second coming. The humble glory of the Lord in Christ's incarnation at Christmas, and the conquering glory of the Lord, which we will witness on the last day. Listen to both comings as we read verses 3 through 5. A voice cries, in the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord. That's John the Baptist. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. And this, this should be a word of comfort to us. There's so much that's wrong with the world, so much brokenness and sin in our relationships, so much rebellion and forgetfulness of God, so much sickness and pain in our bodies, 
so much conflict in our cities and our nations. And we need someone to come and make it right. And it's true that we should do our level best in the mighty power of the Spirit to build families and churches and communities that will battle against the darkness of this age. We will continue to pray for spiritual revival and cultural renewal in our day, in our land. But after pouring our hearts out in that fight, when we look around and see that the job is still unfinished, and that darkness and sin and pain still remain, we will not despair. Because though our task is to fight for this world and for its people, the ultimate victory is not ours to win. When we come to the end of our physical and spiritual strength, we will be forced again to remember this world is still groaning for the final return of the King. The final banishment of all sin and darkness and pain and the renewal and restoration of all things. The day is coming, and though it is not yet, the hope of Christ's coming is a strong encouragement, a solid comfort as we sojourn in this fallen world. Be comforted. Christ is coming in glory soon. Two cries of comfort down, two to go. We've heard a tender cry of forgiveness and a glorious cry of the Lord's coming. We're to turn now to the third cry, a confident cry in Christ's enduring, God's enduring word. Notice the last line of verse 5. We've already read it. The glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. I, uh, I finished the writing on, uh, on the thesis paper I've been writing for my degree. It's the last little bit of my, my schoolwork. And I, I've done all of my work. At this point, I'm waiting for the feedback of my thesis advisor. And one thing that he'll comb through as he's as he's sort of looking through the final draft of my paper, is at the footnotes and at my bibliography. Because in a formal academic paper, you can't just make up a claim without backing it up. You need to back up all of your claims with citations from reliable sources. And throughout my paper, I have um, 90 some odd footnotes citing what are hopefully reliable sources. Here's my claim, and here, I'm going to put a little footnote. This is why you should believe it. Don't just take my word for it. Here's a reliable source. And in verse 5, Isaiah has inserted the footnote of all footnotes, the reliable source of all reliable sources. The glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord the glory of the Lord will be revealed. Christ will come again. And you can bank on it because God says it. And you can trust his word. The whole third cry, starting in verse 6, is a meditation on the trustworthiness of God's word. Look at verse 6. A voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, and the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades. But the word of our God will stand forever. The term all flesh here has already appeared in verse 5. It means all of humanity, all flesh, all of mankind. And Isaiah is being told to proclaim that all flesh is like grass. All flesh is like the flower of the field. I was writing this sermon earlier in the week. I looked out the window, and, and the grass outside the church was still a little green on the lawn. But not for long. It's buried in snow now. The flowers of our main hay fields are long gone. Grass fades. God's saying that, that we're like that too. Most of our lives are, are longer than the life of a daisy or a dandelion. But the end of the season is coming for us all. Verse 7, the, the grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely, the people are grass. Our human lives 
and nations have the appearance of endurance, but our human lives are passing away. So much that we hold so tightly in this life will one day be gone. But there's one thing that will always remain. I say it again. Grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Isaiah is telling us that this glorious cry of God's soon coming isn't like the words in the lives of men. God's word won't fade. When God speaks, it isn't a transitory thing that, that's like true one day and false the next. Whenever he speaks, what he says goes and what he decrees stands for all eternity. The word of our God will stand forever. And that's a wonderful comfort. It certainly was for Israel in exile. Everything around them told them that there was no hope, that they'd be stuck in the Babylon of the great kings forever. But standing amidst those great kings, Israel could stand tall, knowing that those kings, like all flesh, are just like flowers of the field. One day even they will fade. But the word of God the word of his soon coming, the great promise on which God's faithful people leaned all their weight would stand. Stronger than all the decrees of all the kings of all the earth is the simple word of the Almighty God. All flesh will fade, but God's word will endure. So, look around. All flesh is like grass. The events and the great men and women of our day will soon be passed. The anxieties and plagues and threats of our day will not last forever. But the promise of Christ's return will endure. You can bet your life on it. Isn't that a comfort? We can be comforted in our waiting, our confidence in God's word. All right. Three cries so far. A tender cry of forgiveness. A glorious cry of the Lord's coming confident cry of God's enduring word. And finally, Isaiah is given an encouraging cry. Encouraging cry of the coming shepherd. Verse 9. Go on up to a high mountain. O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not, say to the cities of Judah, Behold your this cry is similar to the one in verses 3 through 5, if you look at it. Um, look, behold, the Lord will arrive. God is coming. Right? This is another announcement that, that God is coming near. Um, but you might notice there's some differences here. Before, God's call was to speak words of comfort to his people. Verse 2, speak tenderly to Jerusalem. Speak these words to my people. But now, instead of being merely the recipient of good news, Jerusalem, God's people, is now the proclaimer of good news. Look at verse 9 again. Go up on a high mountain. Get up wherever everyone can hear you. O Zion, which means Jerusalem. It's another name for the city. Get up to a, get up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Now Jerusalem, you're the herald, you're the proclaimer. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not, say to the cities of Judah, to all the rest of the people, Behold your God. Look, God's coming. On the way by, it's, it's worth noticing a pattern here in the way that God works. God spoke comfort to Jerusalem so that Jerusalem could then proclaim words of comfort to all of Judah. When God's people received good news, they were then to go up on a mountain and proclaim the good news. And isn't that exactly the, the pattern with, with those of us in the New Covenant after Christ's first coming? Having, haven't we heard the comforting news of the gospel of Jesus? And now that we've heard it, we've actually been commissioned, having heard it, to go and proclaim it. Go Tell it on the mountain, you heralds of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to all the cities of the world, Jesus Christ is born. Behold, 
your God in the manger. Just on the way by, let's, let's not pass up the opportunities that God is giving us this Christmas season to get up on the mountain and point to Jesus' coming. In the coming weeks, I, I want us as a church to be praying for opportunities to talk about Jesus with our family and our friends. And here's an easy jumping off point. Ask a simple question. Simple question. What does Christmas mean to you? Listen, actually listen to their answer. Don't go jumping all over them when they don't mention Jesus. If they don't know Jesus, they probably won't mention him. They're wrong to forget him, but a more gentle way to correct your family and a more effective way at actually getting them to hear is simply then to tell them what Christmas means to you. Tell them about Jesus. Tell them what you learned in last week's sermon. Tell them why Jesus means so much to you. Tell them why you treasure this opportunity every year to celebrate Him. Wear your heart on your sleeve in a clear, open, unapologetic, and yet winsome way. And then pray that the Lord would work. Say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Verse 10. Behold, the Lord God comes with might. And his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his recompense before him. Here again is a picture of Christ's powerful coming into the world. As before, the, the two comings of Christ are seen here through one prophetic lens by Isaiah. But from our vantage point, we see colors both from Christ's first coming and his second in these words. He will one day come again in glory and power and might rule the nations in justice and in joy. His power will be bad news on that day for all who oppose him, but for his people his strong right arm is good news. And verse 11 describes how God's power is focused into deliverance by his love for his people. Verse 11, this is amazing. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom gently lead those that are with young. The image of a shepherd is used throughout the Old Testament. Kings like, um, like David and his descendants are compared to shepherds. They're the shepherds of Israel. They ruled over and cared for God's people. But if you have any familiarity with the Old Testament, you'll know that God himself is also described as a as a shepherd. I'm sure you all have heard Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. And Isaiah's promise here was that though God's people would soon be scattered throughout the nations, the day was coming when God himself would come in power. Remember, behold your God, God's coming, and he would personally, lovingly tend the flock of his people. He would soon come and gather the scattered lambs lead them to better pastures. And this, this image of God being the shepherd who's going to come shepherd his people is, is scattered throughout the prophets. Um, Ezekiel 34 is a particularly beautiful passage along these lines. I'm going to read a few verses from, Isaiah, uh, from Ezekiel 34. Another prophet foretelling the future deliverance of God's people. Ezekiel 34, starting in verse 11. For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I, and God speaking, I, I myself, will search for my sheep and will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered, so will I seek out my sheep and I will rescue them from all the places where they have been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. Verse 14. I will feed them with good pasture, and on the mountain heights of Israel shall be their grazing land. They shall lie down in good grazing land, and on rich pasture they shall feed on the mountains of Israel. Listen to this. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep, and I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. It's a powerful passage. In keeping Ezekiel 34 and Isaiah 40 in the back of your mind 
when you're reading the Gospels is particularly powerful, right? Remember their promise. Their promise, God is coming. God himself is coming near in power as a shepherd to tenderly care for his sheep. That's what we're looking out for. Right? That's what the Jewish people were looking for. God's coming, and he's going to be our shepherd. With that in mind, I want to read just this one verse from the Gospel of John. With all that in mind as the background, John chapter 10, verse 14 is a juggernaut. Listen to this. John 10, verse 14. Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. I am the good shepherd. I am God. I've come near. I've come in power. I've come to find my sheep and to bring them back to myself. Friends, when Isaiah said, he will tend your flock like a shepherd, tend his flock like a shepherd, he was talking about Jesus. At Christmas, God came near. Behold your God, the shepherd we've been looking for, lying in a manger. He has come near, and though he has infinite power, you need not be afraid if you belong to him, because in Christ, our good shepherd, the powerful right hand of God has tenderly worked in the lives of his people to seek and to save every last one of his sinful, wandering sheep. And friends, though our shepherd ascended back to the Father, he is coming again. If you have put your faith in Jesus Christ, if you have come to him in total abandon, repenting of your sins and casting yourself totally on him, you're his sheep. You belong to him. And he will never let you go. John 10 again, this time starting in verse 27. This is a great word of comfort. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Christ our good shepherd will return again one day soon. And nothing that will ever happen to you, no darkness you walk through, no sickness you stumble through, no sin which can bind you, can ever keep him from holding on to you. John 10 verse 14 begins with Jesus' words. I am the good shepherd. Jesus continues. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. And Listen to this. I lay down my life for the sheep. The babe who we celebrate in Bethlehem's manger was the good shepherd who came to lay his life down for the sheep. Christmas happened so that Good Friday could happen. Christ was born so that he might die and that he might rise again. Christ laid down his life for his sheep. The good news that we proclaim as Christians, that we build our lives on as we wait for Christ's second coming, is the glorious news that in Jesus' first coming, Christ died in the place of sinners. Christ took the full weight of our sins upon himself, upon the cross, so that all who belong to him, all who are made alive by the Spirit and come to him in faith, can be forgiven and re reconciled to God. So, be comforted. Be comforted on this snowy Sunday, wherever you are, whatever you're going through, in knowing that the Good Shepherd knows you, that He's coming again soon for all who believe. As we celebrate Christ's first coming and wait for His second, be comforted. Be comforted by a tender cry of forgiveness, by a glorious cry of the Lord's coming, by a confident cry from God's enduring Word, and by an encouraging. Let's go.
Father, we thank you for this wonderful word in Isaiah chapter 40, a word of comfort for your people. And though it was spoken to your people Judah many, many years ago, it, it contains promises which we bank our lives on because we know that this word of comfort was fulfilled and will one day finally be fulfilled in the coming of Christ. We thank you, Father, for making yourself known in him, for flattening the mountains and coming near, that we might know you and be saved by you. Pray that your spirit would be at work in us today and throughout the week, that we'd be comforted by the good news of Jesus, we'd be amazed by your kindness in him, we'd be confident in the endurance of your word. It's so good, Father, whatever may come to bank on the fact that you're our good shepherd that you'll never let us go Jesus you're our strong foundation our solid rock we know that all other, all other ground is sinking sand we thank you that we can stand on you we pray all this in Jesus name Amen alright God bless you guys <laughs>